Section 68 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the Fourth. Chapter 1. The Temptation of St. Gwynplaine. One jet of flame hardly makes a prick in the darkness. Another sets fire to a volcano. Some sparks are gigantic. Gwynplaine read the letter, then he read it over again. Yes, the words were there, I love you. Terrors chased each other through his mind. The first was that he believed himself to be mad. He was mad, that was certain. He had just seen what had no existence. The twilight spectres were making game of him, poor wretch. The little man in scarlet was the will-o'-the-wisp of a dream. Sometimes, at night, nothings, condensed into flame, come and laugh at us. Having had his laugh out, the visionary being had disappeared, and left Gwynplaine behind him mad. Such are the freaks of darkness. The second terror was to find out that he was in his right senses. A vision? Certainly not. How could that be? Had he not a letter in his hand? Did he not see an envelope, a seal, paper, and writing? Did he not know from whom that came? It was all clear enough. Someone took a pen and ink and wrote. Someone lighted a taper and sealed it with wax. Was not his name written on the letter to Gwynplaine? The paper was scented. All was clear. Gwynplaine knew the little man. The dwarf was a page, the gleam was a livery. The page had given him a rendezvous for the same hour on the morrow, at the corner of London Bridge. Was London Bridge an illusion? No, no, all was clear. There was no delirium, all was reality. Gwynplaine was perfectly clear in his intellect. It was not a phantasmagoria suddenly dissolving above his head and fading into nothingness. It was something which had really happened to him. No, Gwynplaine was not mad, nor was he dreaming. Again he read the letter. Well, yes, but then? That, then, was terror-striking. There was a woman who desired him. If so, let no one ever again pronounce the word incredible. A woman desire him? A woman who had seen his face? A woman who was not blind? And who was this woman? An ugly one? No. A beauty? A gypsy? No. A duchess. What was it all about, and what could it all mean? What peril in such a triumph? And how was he to help plunging into it headlong? What? That woman? The siren? The apparition? The lady in the visionary box? The light in the darkness? It was she. Yes, it was she. The crackling of the fire burst out in every part of his frame. It was the strange, unknown lady, she who had previously so troubled his thoughts, and his first tumultuous feelings about this woman returned, heated by the evil fire. Forgetfulness is nothing but a palimpsest. An incident happens unexpectedly, and all that was effaced revives in the blanks of wandering memory. Gwynplaine thought that he had dismissed that image from his remembrance, and he found that it was still there, and she had put her mark in his brain, unconsciously guilty of a dream. 
Without his suspecting it, the lines of the engraving had been bitten deep by reverie. And now a certain amount of evil had been done, and this train of thought, thenceforth, perhaps irreparable, he took up again eagerly. What? She desired him? What? The princess descend from her throne, the idol from its shrine, the statue from its pedestal, the phantom from its cloud. What? From the depths of the impossible had the chimera come. This deity of the sky, this irradiation, this nereid, all glistening with jewels, this proud and unattainable beauty from the height of her radiant throne was bending down to Gwynplaine. What? Had she drawn up her chariot of the dawn with its yoke of turtle-doves and dragons before Gwynplaine, and said to him, Come! What? This terrible glory of being the object of such abasement from the Empyrean for Gwynplaine. This woman, if he could give that name to a form so star-like and majestic, this woman proposed herself, gave herself, delivered herself up to him. Wonder of wonders! A goddess prostituting herself for him. The arms of a courtesan opening in a cloud to clasp him to the bosom of a goddess, and that without degradation. Such majestic creatures cannot be sullied. The gods bathed themselves pure in light, and this goddess who came to him knew what she was doing. She was not ignorant of the incarnate hideousness of Gwynplaine. She had seen the mask which was his face, and that mask had not caused her to draw back. Gwynplaine was loved notwithstanding it. Here was a thing surpassing all the extravagance of dreams. He was loved in consequence of his mask. Far from repulsing the goddess, the mask attracted her. Gwynplaine was not only loved, he was desired. He was more than accepted, he was chosen. He! Chosen! What? There where this woman dwelt in the regal region of irresponsible splendour, and in the power of full free will, where there were princes, and she could take a prince, nobles, and she could take a noble, where there were men handsome, charming, magnificent, and she could take an Adonis, whom did she take? Naphron. She could choose from the midst of meteors and thunders the mighty six-winged seraphim, and she chose the lava crawling in the slime. On one side were highnesses and peers, all grandeur, all opulence, all glory. On the other, a mountebank. The mountebank carried it. What kind of scales could there be in the heart of this woman? By what measure did she weigh her love? She took off her ducal coronet and flung it on the platform of a clown. She took from her brow the Olympian aureola and placed it on the bristly head of a gnome. The world had turned topsy-turvy. The insects swarmed on high, the stars were scattered below, whilst the wonder-stricken Gwynplaine, overwhelmed by a falling ruin of light, and lying in the dust, was enshrined in a glory. One all-powerful, revolting against beauty and splendour, gave herself to the damned of night, preferred Gwynplaine to Antinous. Excited by curiosity, she entered the shadows, and descending within them, and from this abdication of goddess-ship, was rising, crowned and prodigious, the royalty of the wretched. You are hideous, I love you. These words touched Gwynplaine in the ugly spot of pride. Pride is the heel, 
in which all heroes are vulnerable. Gwynplaine was flattered in his vanity as a monster. He was loved for his deformity. He, too, was the exception, as much and perhaps more than the Jupiters and the Apollos. He felt superhuman, and so much a monster as to be a god. Fearful bewilderment. Now, who was this woman? What did he know about her? Everything and nothing. She was a duchess, that he knew. He knew also that she was beautiful and rich, that she had liveries, lackeys, pages, and footmen running with torches by the side of her coroneted carriage. He knew that she was in love with him, at least she said so. Of everything else he was ignorant. He knew her title, but not her name. He knew her thought. He knew not her life. Was she married widow-maiden? Was she free? Of what family was she? Were there snares, traps, dangers about her? Of the gallantry existing on the idle heights of society, the caves on those summits in which savage charmers dream amidst the scattered skeletons of the loves which they have already preyed on, of the extent of tragic cynicism to which the experiments of a woman may attain who believes herself to be beyond the reach of man, of things such as these Gwynplaine had no idea. Nor had he even in his mind materials out of which to build up a conjecture, information concerning such things being very scanty in the social depths in which he lived. Still he detected a shadow. He felt that a mist hung over all this brightness. Did he understand it? No. Could he guess at it? Still less. What was there behind that letter? One pair of folding doors opening before him, another closing on him, and causing him a vague anxiety. On the one side an avowal, on the other an enigma. Avowal and enigma, which, like two mouths, one tempting, the other threatening, pronounced the same word, dare. Never had perfidious chance taken its measures better, nor timed more fitly the moment of temptation. Gwynplaine, stirred by spring and by the sap rising in all things, was prompt to dream the dream of the flesh. The old man who was not to be stamped out, and over whom none of us can triumph, was awaking in that backward youth, still a boy at twenty-four. It was just then, at the most stormy moment of the crisis, that the offer was made him, and the naked bosom of the sphinx appeared before his dazzled eyes. Youth is an inclined plane. Gwynplaine was stooping, and something pushed him forward. What? The season and the night. Who? The woman. Were there no month of April, man would be a great deal more virtuous. The budding plants are a set of accomplices. Love is the thief, spring the receiver. Gwynplaine was shaken. There is a kind of smoke of evil preceding sin in which the conscience cannot breathe. The obscure nausea of hell comes over virtue and temptation. The yawning abyss discharges an exhalation which warns the strong and turns the weak giddy. Gwynplaine was suffering its mysterious attack. Dilemmas, transient and at the same time stubborn, were floating before him. Sin, presenting itself obstinately again and again to his mind, was taking form. The morrow, midnight, London Bridge, the page, should he go? Yes, cried the flesh, no, cried the soul. 
Nevertheless, we must remark that, strange as it may appear at first sight, he never once put himself the question, should he go, quite distinctly. Reprehensible actions are like over-strong brandies. You cannot swallow them at a draught. You put down your glass. You will see to it presently. There is a strange taste even about that first drop. One thing is certain, he felt something behind him pushing him forward towards the unknown. And he trembled. He could catch a glimpse of a crumbling precipice, and he drew back stricken by the terror encircling him. He closed his eyes. He tried hard to deny to himself that the adventure had ever occurred, and to persuade himself into doubting his reason. This was evidently his best plan. The wisest thing he could do was to believe himself mad. Fatal Fever Every man, surprised by the unexpected, has at times felt the throb of such tragic pulsations. The observer ever listens with anxiety to the echoes resounding from the dull strokes of the battering ram of destiny striking against a conscience. Alas, Squinplane put himself questions. Where duty is clear, to put oneself questions is to suffer defeat. There are invasions which the mind may have to suffer. There are the vandals of the soul, evil thoughts coming to devastate our virtue. A thousand contrary ideas rushed into Gwynplaine's brain, now following each other singly, now crowding together. Then silence reigned again, and he would lean his head on his hands in a kind of mournful attention, as of one who contemplates a landscape by night. Suddenly he felt that he was no longer thinking. His reverie had reached that point of utter darkness in which all things disappear. He remembered, too, that he had not entered the inn. It might be about two o'clock in the morning. He placed the letter which the page had brought him in his side pocket, but perceiving that it was next to his heart, he drew it out again, crumpled it up, and placed it in a pocket of his hose. He then directed his steps towards the inn, which he entered stealthily, and without awakening little Govicum, who while waiting up for him had fallen asleep on the table with his arms for a pillow. He closed the door, lighted a candle at the lamp, fastened the bolt, turned the key in the lock, taking mechanically all the precautions usual to a man returning home late, ascended the staircase of the green box, slipped into the old hovel which he used as a bedroom, looked at Ursus who was asleep, blew out his candle, and did not go to bed. Thus an hour passed away. Weary at length, and fancying that bed and sleep were one, he laid his head upon the pillow without undressing, making darkness the concession of closing his eyes. But the storm of emotions which assailed him had not waned for an instant. Sleeplessness is a cruelty which night inflicts on man. Gwynplaine suffered greatly. For the first time in his life he was not pleased with himself. Ache of heart mingled with gratified vanity. What was he to do? Day broke at last. He heard Ursus get up, but did not raise his eyelids. No truce for him, however. The letter was ever in his mind. Every word of it came back to him in a kind of chaos. In certain violent storms within the soul, thought becomes a liquid. It is convulsed. It heaves, and something rises from it like the dull roaring of the waves. Flood and flow, sudden shocks and whirls, the hesitation of the wave before the rock. Hail and rain, clouds with the light shining through their breaks, the petty flights of useless foam, 
wild swell broken in an instant, great efforts lost, wreck appearing all around, darkness and universal dispersion, as these things are of the sea, so are they of man. Gwynplaine was a prey to such a storm. At the acme of his agony, his eyes still closed, he heard an exquisite voice saying, Are you asleep, Gwynplaine? He opened his eyes with a start and sat up. Dea was standing in the half-open doorway. Her ineffable smile was in her eyes and on her lips. She was standing there, charming in the unconscious serenity of her radiance. Then came, as it were, a sacred moment. Gwynplaine watched her, startled, dazzled, awakened. Awakened from what? From sleep? No, from sleeplessness. It was she, it was Dea. And suddenly he felt in the depths of his being the indescribable wane of the storm and the sublime descent of good over evil. The miracle of the look from on high was accomplished. The blind girl, the sweet light-bearer, with no effort beyond her mere presence, dissipated all the darkness within him. The curtain of cloud was dispersed from the soul as if drawn by an invisible hand, and a sky of azure, as though by celestial enchantment, again spread over Gwynplaine's conscience. In a moment he became by the virtue of that angel the great and good Gwynplaine, the innocent man. Such mysterious confrontations occur to the soul as they do to creation. Both were silent. She who was the light, he who was the abyss. She who was divine, he who was appeased. And over Gwynplaine's stormy heart, Dea shone with the indescribable effect of a star shining on the sea. End of section 68. Recording by John Trevithick.